As promised uh, last time, this evening we are seeing one of the greatest stories in the Bible, one of the greatest narratives of ministry success in all of God's Word, uh, in a little survey work on 1 Thessalonians. Every chapter of 1 Thessalonians concludes with a message about the Lord Jesus coming for us, with a word from God about when He comes for us. Like in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says that uh, we are waiting. The, the Thessalonians turn to God to serve the, turn to, to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. That's a future reference to Jesus coming. That's the anticipation. What are we doing now that we're saved? We're waiting for his son from heaven. Um. Chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians also concludes with a reference when he says, for who, when he's talking about the Thessalonians, who is our, our hope or joy or crown of exaltation, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our joy, our glory and our joy. The goal of his ministry is that the Lord would cause them in, at the end of chapter 3 to increase and abound in love for one another and for all just as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. See, every one of these uh, little chapters of this little letter concludes the word about Jesus coming for us as the motivation focus, the, 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 the attitude that we're oriented on in, in terms of, of our hope and our life. Chapter 4 has the great rapture passage. We call it rapture because we're speaking Latin. It's the harpox, if you want to speak Greek, or the harpazo of the catching up in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And that's very famous, but I wonder if you know about chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ the concluding blessing uh, in 1 Thessalonians. This is what we're studying tonight. 1 Thessalonians as a model, looking at the story Paul tells in it of follow-up in the gospel ministry, um, a, a, a topic that you probably haven't heard a lot of sermons on, follow-up in the gospel ministry, what you do, having shared Christ, the person having received Christ. Now, what? And I, I give you a hint. It isn't here is a card with an address, show up here at 9 o'clock on Sunday. I mean, that's maybe part of it, but there's a lot more involved than impersonal process. There's a personal connection and concern when you lead someone to the Lord. Let's ask the Spirit of God to strengthen us for this study tonight. Father, we've assembled to glorify you so that we, by knowing you better, we re regard the Scriptures, as Peter has told us, as superfood, as nutrition spiritually, to strengthen us for the work and to grow us into mature Christian spiritual lives so that we can do mature spiritually adult work and not be relegated, Father, to the wastrels of time and resources that attend uh, or describe those who will not grow up. They will not focus on your word. They will not be serious about what you've said and their relationship with you. Father, we don't want to be like that. We want to be, as Paul described, looking for Jesus, 
when he comes, occupying our time, making the most of the time for the days are evil. Don't let us waste this hour waiting for it to end. Father, let us hang on every word of Scripture so that we are equipped to share Christ for those that don't know him and to share Christ with those who do in a new way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time, I introduced you briefly to the story of the Apostle Paul in Thessaloniki, or as we say here in America, we probably call it Thessalonica, where Paul uh, was there for three Sabbaths, maybe a little longer, a very short period of time, and he had an outsized impact, it turns out, when we read the first epistle to Thessalonians. And we said that follow-up is this, I'm calling it follow-up, I don't know what else to call it. When you've shared Christ with someone, and then, then now what? Well, congratulations, you're going to heaven, see ya when we get there. You know, that, that sort of is how we have come to think about, about evangelism. When you say evangelism, you think of um, sharing Christ, a few accept, most don't. A few receive Christ by faith, they believe when you share the gospel with them. Congratulations, you're my brother, sister in Christ. And we think of that as the, that's it. But as you look to the scriptures, that's the beginning of life for that person. And you were there. And uh, maybe you're going to be used by the Lord to disciple that person. And that's what the Apostle Paul shows us. In fact, the New Testament is written, especially the epistles, in every case by the apostles to follow up with those that they've ministered to. In most cases, they brought Christ. It's the early church. People don't know about Jesus. They're sharing. They're pioneering, breaking new ground, as Paul does through the Mediterranean world. And when those people come to Christ, he preaches to them. He shares the word with them. He prays with them. He shows them the ropes. They're baptized as their public profession of their faith in Christ. And then he has to go because he's an itinerant minister. He's a missionary on, on a, a mission to spread this around. And, to, and sometimes he stays for a while. But the point is that he's not the long-term private, permanent party guy. But he wants to encourage and build. And so he's writing to these people. He's writing for their growth, for their edification, for building them. And we, had to be, we said last time we have to be careful about what's an apostle versus what am I. Nobody here is an apostle. You can go down the road and find churches that will tell you they have apostles and residents in their church. But I believe, we believe here, the apostles passed on in the first century. The last one to survive and then finally perish was named the Apostle John. I think he was one of the younger ones, and I think he was, uh, he was very close to our Savior. He calls himself in his gospel the, the one, that the, the disciple that the Lord loved, the beloved disciple. He doesn't name himself sometimes. He calls himself the one that the Lord loved. And he was very personally intimate in a, in a very close friendship with our Savior, perhaps closer than the other apostles, um, perhaps even including Peter. And um, uh, the apostle John, when he died, well, we didn't have any more apostles. Um, and the apostle Paul died in the 60s, probably we think around 68 AD uh, under Nero. And when Paul died, that was not the beginning of the second phase of the church age. That was the end of Paul's life. And uh, Paul isn't the last word on Christian life because John, the apostle, survived him some 30 years or almost 30 years and wrote his gospels, his epistles, and the book of Revelation called in Greek the apocalypsis or the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
So what we're saying is that the apostles are these, give, these ones that gave us the New Testament. And the reason they gave it to us in part when Paul writes these letters that we have, we have treasured as inscripturated truth, word for word from the Holy Spirit through the pen of the Apostle Paul, what we're saying is that the occasion in history for us to have First Thessalonians is that Paul cared about these people and wanted to see them grow. And in this particular case, it was unlikely after the flesh that his short-term ministry in Thessalonica would have resulted in much of an impact. Just imagine you share Christ with someone and they say, I've always wondered about this. I've been, here's the story, right? You've, you, maybe you've heard someone tell this story. I've been up unable to sleep for, for a week because I had a friend that died and I've started thinking about death and I haven't really considered death much in my life and now it's bothering me and I don't want to burn. And I'm afraid of death and I'm afraid of the judgment because it's real to me for some reason. I don't even know why it's real to me. And then all of a sudden, my friend from 20 years back called me to see how I was, wanted me to know that he was a believer in Christ and wanted to share Christ with me. And all of a sudden, it was real that that was the answer that I was looking for and that concern that I had. Maybe you've heard stories like this. This is the stuff of conversations with how people come come to Christ. There is something that happens that God sets up in your life where you all of a sudden see the need. Someone fills that need with the preacher, as Paul says in Romans 10, and you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins and rose from the dead on the third day to give you eternal life. And you trust in Christ as your Savior. And you recognize that he alone paid for your sin debt on the cross. And the problem that you have, that really God has with you, where the wrath of God abides on sin, was exhausted at the cross of Jesus Christ in your place. And that it resonates. And the Holy Spirit, what he's doing, is he's making that message of the gospel real to you in that moment, in your spirit. And you are coming to see Christ as your Savior. And you're, it's very clear there's a moment where you actually choose to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so lots of possible ways this thing gets set up. Someone has a financial disaster and they don't know what to do and they don't know where to turn. But the point is that when you get to be the one, as I like to say, that's holding the net, somebody hooks the fish, reels it in, you know, he loses his grip, someone comes along, helps him get hold of that fish, and they reel it in together, and then there you are, you know, looking at your phone, like, hey, get the net, hurry, get the net, and you're like, oh, and you grab the net, and you're like, here, and you, and you, you get the fish. That's how a lot of evangelism works, is that somebody's grandma's been praying for that guy for 30 years. And then here you come bopping along, praying. You just happen to be walking with the Lord in a strong momentum way in this moment. And here you are with that person and you're, you're, you're rejoicing your salvation. And you say, for some reason that, hey, Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead. And the guy says, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. From that conversation. I mean, God brings these things together, right? So there you were. You just grabbed the, the net and you, and, and you got to bring the one to bring the fish in the boat. Some of you have had that experience. You've been those net holders, and you know it's just like that. God did all that other stuff. I just, he let me get the net at just the right moment, right? We've all, hopefully all of us have had that kind of experience, or you've seen others have that experience. I challenge you to tell each other, share the story when you share Christ, because it's a marvelous uh, encouragement for all of us when we see God working in this way. But what next? That person believed, what do you do? Well, now, believer, 
You need to be Ananias and Sapphira. You need to be the people with the answers because you've been in the word. If you don't have anything to offer, that's really sad for that person. Here's what the Christian life looks like. Here's how we do it. You know, my pastor likes to say this. He thinks it's a summary of the Bible. He thinks that relationships are communication. And the way we talk to God, what? Did I say Ananias and Sapphira? No, they died the sin unto death. Thank you. That's a good catch. I meant Priscilla and Aquila, and I meant Aquila and Priscilla. I, I did not mean Ananias and Sapphira. Well, let's close in prayer. <laughs> Something. So that makes me think of the, the Britches Bible or the, the Wicked Bible. There, there is a Bible they printed in the early printing press that they called the Wicked Bible, and I think someone probably lost his job. Actually, the printing press got shut down. They printed, um, I think it was a Geneva edition of the Bible. But um, in the Exodus 20, when it said, thou shalt not commit adultery, the typesetter forgot the word not. And it said, thou shalt commit adultery. And they called it the Wicked Bible when it came out. And you know, who was the skippy that was like, got, got his fresh English Bible recently printed, and he flipped to Exodus 20? And, or did they just start reading in Genesis and get to Exodus and say, you know, that's wrong. Who, who was the first one to catch it, the error? Well, thank you for noticing that. I meant Priscilla and Aquila, not Ananias and Sapphira. Disciple makers come in all shapes and sizes, but they can't make disciples if they lie to the Holy Spirit and die the sin unto death. So uh, Ananias and Sapphira would not be good examples of disciple makers, but Priscilla and Aquila would. And, uh, but after all, in both cases, notice that one man, one woman in marriage, and they kind of they did their thing together, lie to the Holy Spirit together, die the sin unto death together, or serve the Lord in making disciples. So when you get to the Apostle Paul's ministry, what I'm trying to say is that um, the very beginning is that you get a seedling sprout. You get somebody that believes in Christ. And then what do you do? And here's where presumption needs to take a back seat, and the Word of God needs to take the front seat. I don't want to be presumptuous and say, this is how we grow. I want to be absolutely certain in the scriptures that my life and my experience is bared out by what God says. I'm living out God's word so that I can say absolutely without any question or conjecture, this isn't just what works for me. This is what God's word says. So my pastor summarizes, you can say, I summarize this way, relationships or communication. God has spoken already. He's already told you what he wants you to know. Do you know all of it? No. Are you working on it? Yeah. Right? We're in First Thess tonight. God has already spoken to us, and that's one phase of, of the communication loop. We speak to him. That's prayer. And that's a Christian spiritual life. And you can tell a new believer, that's what you've been born to as a relationship. And as a new believer, you've got to learn how he talks to us. And we've got to learn how we talk to him. And show you, the, you show that person prayer. And you show that person how we read the Bible. And that means, watch this, you have to be a person that prays and reads the Bible. You have to be a person that knows how to go after God's word and handle it at, at some level correctly with honor, with respect, with reverence. This is God's word. Don't understand all of it, but I believe all of it is God talking to us and he wants us to know what it says. So he wants us to work at it. And so, so you can bring someone along if you understand what the Bible says about the Christian life. And I think that you see this in the Apostle Paul dealing with the Thessalonians. Now, I do want to say, the apostles passed on, and we're not apostles. 
So you can't co-opt some of the things the Apostle Paul was doing because he was blazing a trail to do the works that God set up for him to do, and only he was called to do them. Okay, But there is still, in all of his actions, a model for us. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. The mission is consistent across the board to make disciples of all the nations. So when you look at 1 Thessalonians by the paragraphs, in chapter 1, which is just 10 verses, I call it review number 1 of 3. Review number 1, the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians are review of this is our relationship to date. Paul is recounting the story of how they fell in love. It's like when you have a sweetheart and you, you get to one of these great anniversaries and you go back and talk about, remember how we met? Remember the, the things that happened that were funny or the things that happened that were embarrassing? And now we laugh at them, but back then it wasn't so funny. And you have this experiential history with that loved one, with, that, 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 um, with your spouse um, uh, over time. And Paul's not married to these people, obviously, but he has a very close personal affection for them. And it's a father-to-child type of relationship, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 4 last time. And so he tells them about what they all know, their meeting. Now, the people in Thessalonica that will receive this letter, I think there are a lot more of them that haven't heard Paul speak than have by what the letter says. I think that the, those listening to this letter when it's read publicly in, first, in Thessalonica, I think these people are um, a bigger group than Paul actually spoke to. And so that's really interesting how the entirety of the body of Christ is audience to this initial work of how he planted a seed and God caused it to grow. But he talks about their strategic meeting and its effect. And the reason it's strategic is the marvelous work of God through the Thessalonians with the gospel where Paul couldn't be there to fan the flames, but he didn't have to. It says the Holy Spirit blew on the flames and the gospel spread through the people that carried it word of mouth to the people throughout Macedonia and Achaia. In chapter 2, the first half, I'm calling it Review 2, where Paul reminds them of his attitude and his message that he shared with them. This was my, my attitude, how I came to you, and this was the message that I spoke to you, and it's review. It's, it's, he has a reason that he's writing. He's writing Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians to encourage them in their faith, to strengthen them for the Christian walk, to give some apostolic injunctions, some commands that are binding on all of us. And they're marvelous, but they don't come around till chapter 4 and 5. Chapters 1 through 3 is all just review material. Hey, remember how we got together, and I couldn't be with you now, but I, I'm so fond. And, and this is all, by the way, autobiography of his prayer. This is why I'm giving thanks for you. And this is how he tells people when he writes letters. He says, this is what I'm praying for you. This is my gratitude for you, for your faith and your walk and your witness and your advocacy for the gospel. And I'm so grateful for you as chapter one. And then you remember how I came to you as chapter two, the first half. The second uh, little chunk, a little shorter thing in 2.13 through 16 is review number three, their performance that they've had under pressure from the Judaizers from people following Paul around and causing problems for them. Uh, and the message of the free grace gospel, the free gift of Christ, and the way we receive that through faith alone. And then in 217 through 20, Paul also doubles down on, I can't be with you. And this letter isn't meant to be a replacement of that. I can't just phone it in or send you a letter, but I can't be with you, so I have to write to you. I must 
send you this letter. I have to because I want to be with you. In fact, you know, remember how I was with you that I wanted to give you my own life. I wanted to be one of you and just set up shop there. I wanted to come to you. It's this biblical doctrine of Christian co-location. And I see why, from chapter 1, why he wanted to throw in with the Thessalonians. I know why he, who doesn't, he's not from there. It's not his hometown or his home, uh, even Roman province. It's not where he's from. It's not his people. It's not his, his culture. But there was such a wonderful initial response to the gospel that seemed like it would really have done wonders if Paul just hadn't been driven away by the mob of Judaizers. If there hadn't been a riot and he had to be spirited out of town so quickly, this really could have gone somewhere. That's Paul's attitude as he left. Well, he's writing to say, apparently God took it somewhere, even though I couldn't be there. So he's so excited about it, and he wants to be there and watch it. In chapter 3, he says, now, so I had to send Timothy. I gave you the very best thing I had because I can't be with you, so I sent Timothy. And now, because I've gotten a report back, this is the follow-on letter. Timothy brought this report back that you're, you're killing it. You're, you're sharing Christ throughout the Roman world, and the, the word is spreading, and so he's rejoicing. He's almost ecstatic about how faithful these people are in their love for one another and the expansion of the gospel through their ministry. And again, he'll review the idea of wanting to be with them in prayer in 311 through 13. I say 311 through 13 is Paul's prayer for co-location with them. See if I got it right. 311. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. That's I want to come. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another, for all people just as we also do for you so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. I believe that this is, I want to be with you and I want to give you what I have that will amount to your spiritual growth and your success. In chapter 4 through 5, you have his summary instructions for new Christians going forward. Summary instructions. And there, there are some questions that have been brought back perhaps from Timothy in correspondence. He's answering the question about those who have died first and aren't going to be there for when Jesus comes. They didn't make it to when Jesus comes to get us, so are they going to miss it? That question. And uh, the, hey, no, the dead in Christ rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds, Paul says. And so that, that concept is he's answering that question based on teaching that apparently he had time to give them, which was our blessed hope, the appearing of our Savior for us in the clouds as he says in 4, 4, 13 through 18. So this is very personal letter. It's very, um, it's very autobiographical. He's telling a story, and he's recounting the story for them. And I think he knows that the audience he's writing to is a much larger group than he first spoke to when he was there uh, before he had to, to flee from the riot. The, the gospel has really expanded and abounded because of him. So let's zoom in just a little bit tonight as we close um, in the last, in the last, the closing hours of our study tonight in chapter one, review part one, the strategic meeting. He says in chapter one, as he always opens his letters, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, he's writing Paul, Silas, the long name for Silas is Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. This is an epistolary greeting where he tells them from the heart of God, what God wants for them. And so what he wants for them. God wants you to experience his grace and his peace. God wants uh, a vibrant, personal fellowship relationship with his children. And we 
will ignore his word and so not have it. We will uh, go after the flesh and so not have it. We will do something that will stop that from happening or else we'll lay hold of the things of God, we'll love him back for his first loving us, and we'll seek him and we'll find him. We'll draw near to him and he'll draw near to us. It's one or the other. And I believe in this there is advancement, there is growth, there is development. And I believe that if you're not advancing, you are retrogressing. And that's a tragedy. And so the analogy of growth, like a child continues to grow physically, that only goes so far because I do believe you can retrogress and you're ignoring of God's word, that superfood that is your spiritual life. And notice when I say spiritual growth and spiritual life, I'm not talking about something separate from your walk with God. I'm talking about growth in your relationship with God, growth in this season in which we're walking by faith and not by sight, growth in thinking the thoughts of God after him and with him. So in chapter 1, verses, uh, verse 2, we have the thanksgiving prayer, where he says what he's thankful for. Now, Rochester in Paul's letters, he always tells his, he almost always tells his audience what he's thankful for about them. And it's always about the gospel and the work of the gospel, how the gospel saved them and how God is using them with the gospel message to save others. And his prayers in his letters are mission prayers. He's thankful for the healings that we read about in the book of Acts. He's thankful for all the things that attended the first century church in the apostolic era. But he rarely says thank you for those things in the letters. He thanks God for the spiritual growth and development of the people in, which, in whom God is working. And I take that as a model for us in our prayers in our assembly. When we just had our prayer meeting a few minutes ago. I believe every other thing we listed was something about spiritual growth or the gospel the spiritual life that God has for us, the work he's called us to do. The worst thing in the world to me as a believer that is going to separate the idea of his spiritual life and his love for God from the works that God has called us to do. Where if you hear works, you think that that's pulling you away from your love for God. The works are God who loves you, inviting you to join the party. That's what it is. Your walk with God is in the works he prepared for you. And if we're going to love God but not be about his works, you've misunderstood the nature of the grace work of God through you and the power of the Spirit. But in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. I'm kind of showing some of the subordinate relationships in the grammar. And so I hope you're not distracted by that, but I just want to highlight what he does. New American Standard's helpful and Writing participles as participles and main verbs as main verbs. It really does. They do, I think, try to do that. And so you have that. We are giving thanks. We, the Paul, Silas, and Timothy, are giving thanks to God always for all of you. And here's the attendant circumstance or when it's happening, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, your election is what he says. You could say his choice of you, but the word is your choice, but the choice that it refers to is God's choice. So that's why the New American Standard circumlocutes and adds his choice of you. But the literal translation would just as your choosing by God. It, it means God made a choice and you are it and God is, and we're thankful for that. We're, we're knowing of this. And for some, that's a theological problem and you're going to hear anything else. And that's a tragedy because you're doing theology instead of Bible exegesis. Let the Bible speak. He doesn't say why God elected or why God chose. He just says he did. 
the theological debates are over why. Well, don't worry about that right now. He doesn't say why he did it. He tells you why he knows he did it. I'll say it again. He doesn't say why God chose. He said why he knows that he chose. Now, again, the word is uh, ekloge, and it means a choice or a selection, or it can be translated, election. These are all the synonyms, synonymous words. And the genitive means yours, your choice. But it doesn't mean that they were the ones that chose. That's not possible in the Greek. It's the choice that belongs to them in the sense that someone else made it about them. And that confusion is why, again, the circumlocution in this uh, attempt to be an interlinear translation, his choice of you. So what do you do with this? Well, um, Paul talks about this concept several times in the Thessalonian epistles. In First and Second Thessalonians, he'll bring it up again in chapter 2. And um, again, how do you know if you're one of the chosen? Pardon the expression, since that's now taken by, um, by drama about Jesus. Um, how do you know that you're one who he has chosen? Well, in the, in the passage, it's that you're a believer. And there is nobody in the Bible that's elect that's not a believer. And those who are believers are what we're calling the chosen, those that are chosen. And so the theological debate that rages in philosophy is, do you get chosen before you believe? Or are you chosen because you will believe? Or how does that work? Do you believe because you're chosen? And we want to ask those kinds of questions because we're suspicious that God is nasty and he's holding back the goods and it's the Genesis 3-5 problem of the diabolical uh, implication that God is holding back the goods. But of course we aren't assuming anything like that. And so when he says your your choice, his choosing of you, this is something that Paul is going to explain. Now, I want you to notice making, bearing, and knowing. All participles modifying why Paul gives thanks. He makes mention while he's giving thanks because he's constantly bearing in mind these qualities. Now, what are these things? Their work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. What are these things? These are the fruits of their faith. This is the life that Paul sees and, and Timothy has come back and reported on. This is the effect we're seeing this is good soil that, that yielded fruit 30-fold. We're just ecstatic about the, the, the wonder. Now, this is how I feel in a lesser way as, as an under-shepherd, not an apostle, just a sheepdog. This is how I feel about seeing believers that are in ministry here with me serving God in the gospel ministry. It's magnificent to behold. And I don't think you're serving me when you go to the, um, the nursing home ministry. Or when you work the fair with me and we share Christ. Or when you share later with me that, hey, I, I want to tell you, I told somebody about Jesus today and it was like one of those things you mentioned with the, the net, they, they, they believed. And it was just one of those things that just God set it up. When, when I hear these things, I feel like Paul feels because I'm seeing steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's real to you in your day and not just Sunday, right? Your spiritual life is a real thing and we're seeing the effects of it. And that's a real thing. So Paul rejoices in it. Now, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, launches us into the explanation that follows in verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. The explanation goes back to he knows that God has chosen them. And he knows that because God worked when Paul showed up with the gospel. 
knowing your election or God's choosing of you because, for, our gospel did not come to you in word only. What this means is that God sent me with a message and he validated it and you received it. See, God is doing something with the gospel. He's doing something with you and your encounters with the gospel. And we got to hang on to that. We have to cling to that thought that God is doing something here. Because if they believe God did something, if they don't believe, that's a problem between them and God. It's God's work. It really is. And we don't know who's going to receive and who's not. We don't know how this is going to go. We just know to be faithful, to, to communicate clearly the love of Christ offered to all. And we need to be part of this work. And when the Lord opens doors, we praise him. And we're looking for those opportunities. Has anybody shared Christ with someone in the last week where, they, where the Lord did something, where he showed up and, they, and they, they heard it, they received it? Has anyone had that experience? Or have, I've heard several uh, stories lately of I, I told someone, my neighbor, whoever, and they're already a believer. That happened a lot this year at the fair. A lot of people that came through were already Christians. You had one? You shared your faith with a Jehovah's Witness? Uh-huh. Yeah. And they and they said. Oh, hey, that's great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was so you got to testify for your faith. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, um, and hey, those people that come to your door asking to talk to you who don't believe Jesus is God, what a marvelous opportunity to share Christ. If I just didn't have stuff to do, sorry, I got to go. Okay, so our gospel, <laughs> no, you do. You want to share the Lord with those people. And who knows, he may give them an opportunity to really consider um, instead of being indoctrinated in satanic uh, lies about our Savior. For our, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be for your, among you for your sake. So verse 5 is a really important pattern of this encounter. I mean, this is the initial planting of the seed. And the word that Paul brought was the word of God. It wasn't the word of Paul. And what he brought to them, our gospel, didn't come to you in word, but in all the things of what God was doing with it. This is what he's saying when he says, for our gospel didn't come to you in word only. We know that you're believers, or we know that God chose you, And we know that because of the way the word happened when we showed up. There was an open door and God did something. And that's what we're after when we share Christ. And and we need to adopt the attitude Jesus teaches. Ask the Lord of the harvest that he send workers into the harvest. It's his work. It's his work and we want to be about it. And um, we don't know how this is going to go. So we ask him. I have many cases in my life of long-term fishing uh, operations that I'm on, long-term conversations. This is going to be family or neighbors or close associates that over long periods of time, I have a good friend, his best friend's an unbeliever. And 
So it's the long conversation, lots of talking to God, five to one, talk to God for one time, talk to the Lord five times for one time I share uh, what I believe with the person, right? And because God has to show up and he has to do this work. When they became believers is Paul's point, it's his thrust, and they had an exemplary ministry that was unexpected from what Paul experienced when there was the riot. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. I've underlined these things because this is the main clause and what follows is going to modify it grammatically. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. So while you're not imitating the Lord in terms of his deity, you're not imitating Paul in terms of his apostleship, those are the things you can't imitate. So what are they imitating? The faith of the apostle Paul, the faithfulness of Christ, the dependence of Christ and Paul on God and his timing and his provision and the Holy Spirit's word. And, and that's the walk that Jesus pioneered and that Paul demonstrated. You became imitators of us in the Lord. So Paul doesn't need to be there. This is the, one of the greatest stories of evangelism in all world history. He shared with a few and it got the, light, the, got the kindling started. And then we didn't know it, but it was a forest of rich pine and it went up in flames Right after Paul was whisked away, all he got to do was light the initial, the initial kindling. And it became this massive wildfire, if you will, of gospel vigor throughout the Macedonian Achaean region. He says, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Or Achaia. Now look what he's saying. You became imitators of us and of Jesus because you suffered, but you rejoiced when you received the word. The word came to you and the ministry of the gospel came to you with suffering and tribulation, but you met it with the joy that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So you're just like Jesus in that sense, who for the joy before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And so we could have endurance because Jesus rejoiced through his suffering, not because of it, but because of what was in front of him, the joy that was in front of him. And so you're an imitator of the Lord and of the Apostle Paul and how you received the, the word under tribulation. And in that suffering, in that crucible of we have life, we have Christ, we've received God, the Holy Spirit and his word, and we have an eternal destiny in Christ. They understood that from what Paul had taught them so that they could rejoice when tribulation and persecution came early on in that. And you would expect that 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 juggernaut of Judaism would come and stomp out that initial kindling. But it was too late. The fire was already too intense by the time the, the persecution came. And they were vigorous. And Paul is just beside himself in chapter 1. And notice that they were imitators of the example in verse 6. You are imitators of me and the Lord. That's they were the example. Jesus is the ultimate exemplar. Those that follow Jesus are, are examples for those coming behind. So Paul follows Jesus. We see Paul. We follow Paul. We're following Jesus. That's the pattern. They're imitators of Paul. Now look what it says as it flips the script in verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Achaia. I keep saying Achaia. It's Achaia. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The, the Corinthian area, where Corinth is a major, major city in Achaia, and Macedonia, Philippi, Thessaloniki, these places of uh, uh, historic Greek culture. So it's amazing that this is, this is exactly the model of discipleship. Jesus tells disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples. So how do we do that? Well, follow me. 
So Paul is following Jesus. They follow Paul, become imitators of them, walk like I walk, think like I think, learn what I've, what I've learned, the same word that I've learned. And then now they are turning around already and people are following that same method. This is how the church got started. This is how the body of Christ became a worldwide thing. This is how it is, listen, that here in the blasted uh, ruins of, of this tortured place of New England, that these people, most of whom are descendants from rank pagans, rank pagans, go back five, six, seven hundred years, and you have all kinds of insanity among, among the Celts of various stripes, among the Nordics. Uh, you don't want to see the Roselands go back far enough. That's, that's messy. That's, that, that's, that's some pagan human sacrifice uh, uh, godless satanic worship going on back there. But here it is. We are saved by grace out of the horrors of our ancestral traditions and the rebellion of our forefathers against God. And we're loving Christ, the Jewish Messiah, several continents away. I've never set foot over there. I haven't gone there to their sacred shrine to touch a relic and get infused with the special way they do it in their culture. In fact, if you try to get this from their culture, you won't have it. You have to get it from God's word, which actually had such an, uh, an outsized impact on this culture. It's a very strange world we live in. But here we are in blasted, insane, post-Christian United States at the pinnacle of post-Christianity, New England. You can say, no, it's California. I think it's kind of a toss-up. They say Providence, Rhode Island is the most godless, most un-Christian city in the United States. Major city. Population area. I know, what, I know what we should do. Let's go do good news clubs. Here we are, despite our ancestral backgrounds, despite all the insanity of all the paganism. Okay, well, I'm not from, from Nordic. I'm from Italy. Okay, Jupiter. Or, or, yeah, the Roman gods. And before that, what the Greeks did. And how that compares with what the Babylonians established in rebellion against God. Or even back to Genesis chapter 11, the point is that God has been gracious to us despite ancestral rot in every case of every believer on planet Earth. And by the way, every unbeliever, there's ancestral rot in their lives and their backgrounds too. And he's still being gracious to them in Second Peter 3 because he's not willing that any should perish, but all, all would come to repentance. So, the point is that these people should have been snuffed out in their faith if you, if you do fleshly math. But, the, but what happened was God planned the flame and they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. How do you do group evangelism? How do you get together and share Christ? Well, if you lived in the Roman world back in that day, you would want to go have workshops in Thessalonica and see how to do it. And what it is as Paul's going to say, is they're sharing the story of how they came to Christ. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia, Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. So now you're known as a hotbed of Christian action, Christian faith, Christian belief. So that we have no need to say anything. This is one of the shocking things that when you're doing your cursory read through, it might jump out at you. You're just reading along. You know how it is when you're just reading. There's a difference between reading and studying. We're juicing things a little bit tonight, kind of a mid-level. But, 
but you know, you just read along, bop it along through. We have no need to say anything. Oh, that's interesting. You just keep reading. But maybe this jumps out to you. Paul has a lot to say. I, I, you know, wish, okay, wish I could have a sit down and have some Bible time with Paul, right? We'll open Romans. I mean, and ask questions and say, in this, is this what you mean by this? That'd be fun to do. And of course, every conclusion I've drawn from Romans, he would, he would validate. But, um, <laughs> but the point is that, that it would be so nice to have a Bible conversation with Paul. And Paul has a lot to say, and they don't know anything in Thessalonica, except a little bit. They know a little bit. Paul's been preaching the gospel. He knows the whole Old Testament. He can teach you Christ through every book of the Old Testament. And, um, and they don't know all that yet. But he doesn't need to share. I don't need to say anything to new, new people. He's a pioneer sharing Christ with unreached people. And when he reaches unreached, they've been reached already. Paul's already seeing ripple effects. He threw, it's like he threw a pebble over there and then went over here. And before he can share over here, the ripple's already over to him. It's amazing what's happened in this ministry. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. All the people that we speak to in the Roman world tell the story about me. I hear the story about this guy named Saul who calls himself Little or Paul. I hear this story about this guy Paulos and Silanos or Silas. Paulos and Silas are going on a trip, and we heard about these men that preached that Christ, the one crucified in Jerusalem outside the gate, that he is the one that the Jews have been looking for who's the Savior of all the world. That's what's happening throughout the Roman world, and people are believing that message. And they're hearing it as a story. Paul gets to somebody and says, have you ever heard? They say, I want to tell you about Paul and Silas. And they're like, Paul and Silas? Paul and Silas look at each other. Oh, tell us. Well, there are these two guys. And they look at each other. There are these two guys that share Christ. And the people of Macedonia all believed in Christ. And they shared it with us. And we've trusted in Christ. And wouldn't it be wonderful to meet Paul? And Paul says, I who am standing here before you am he. That's, that's what's happening. We're showing up to tell people about Christ in our various travels. And they already know about Christ, and they're telling stories about us, sharing Christ. Now, this is God's work, and this is the most important thing to draw out of this, is that God is doing this. This is his project. It's described for you through 27 books of the New Testament. It's his project. He's inviting you to join him in it. He loves you. And he sent his the son, he's giving you the highest and best. And then he said, now, now go share. And it feels after the flesh like drudgery. Oh, I'm going to just live my life to share the gospel. It's your dad saying, this is the best. This is the, this is the joy. This is the project. I'm building something. Want to help me? Here's a shovel. Here is your equipment. Here's your hard hat. We got work to do. And dad is saying, build this with me. And it's a totally different way of thinking about it then the way it's te- we tend to kind of choke on the gospel ministry, oh, you know, it's drudgery, we have to go share, Je- i got to share Jesus. They report about us what kind of reception we have with you, how you turn to God from idols. I love this model. You turn to God from idols. If you don't say turn from your sin, then you haven't preached the gospel. Well, then Paul doesn't preach the gospel in Romans. Paul doesn't preach the gospel in a lot of the epistles. If that's, not, if that's how you have to say the gospel. One of the things that's happening when you turn from sin is you're turning to God. That is what you're doing as you trust in Christ. You're turning to God. 
And by doing that, you're turning from idols. And if you haven't understood who God is and, and how that relates to the idols, that needs some more uh, understanding. One of the things uh, you hear in the early framework messages, I heartily recommend you check out Charlie Clough's framework series. 224 lessons through the Bible developing the theology how in the narrative of the scriptures how God develops the theological categories. It's really helpful to have that biblical worldview and biblical-based, Bible-based theology. Um, and one of the early things he shares about how the new tribes people learned back in the 60s that if you go to an unreached people and you start translating Mark into their language, you're dropping the Jesus event into their lives without any context. And that's not how God does it. The new tribe's breakthrough was you start in Genesis with the nature of reality to give the context that eventually you share because of the creator of all things who isn't part of creation has come to us in the flesh of man and that, that he died for your sins. Because what happens is the tribe would, the, 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 the syncretistic people or the, um, the pagan people will add Jesus onto the charm bracelet. We've got lots of gods, and Jesus, well, he's the one the Hebrews pray to, or the, the, Jew, the, the Christians pray to, that a lot of, a lot of them were early, early on were, were Jews, and now a lot of them are Gentiles. So you turn to God from idols. There is a separation that's taking place as I believe you have a portrayal of saving faith here, which is also paramount or tantamount to repentance. How you turn to God from idols, and then you have an, an infinitive to explain purpose. Why did they turn to God from idols? Why did you become a believer? To serve the living and true God. I turn to God from idols to go to heaven when I die because I don't want to burn. Well, okay, that's good if you're three, but you need to grow up a little bit. Why did you trust in Christ? Why are you saved? You're not saved to serve yourself. You're saved from the self-serving tendencies of your, of your sin nature. You're saved to serve the living and true God. And I think it's important to notice the sequence. I don't serve him so that I'm saved. I turn to God from idols to serve him. See it? To serve a living and true God and, verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. All right, that's chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul spends the entire chapter telling people, some of whom will hear this letter, what happened in his recounting of events. It could be called historiography, the writing of the story. This is what I want to include in our encounter. We heard Luke's version in Acts 17, last time, 1 through 10. But Paul doesn't talk about almost anything there that Luke talks about. He talks about how the word has caught on there and they're advancing. But notice... He's recounting the story and reestablishing that contact with them because he has something that he wants to share. He wants them to walk. In chapter 4, verse 1, the apostle says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instructions how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. There's the story of how we got where you are now. And then there's the question of what am I supposed to be doing? And so Paul, with his apostolic authority, says, we exhort, request, what does he say? We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you walk as you ought and that you excel still more in that walk. 
So he's fanning the flames. Now, do you fan the flames as an apostle? Do you say, with the authority of Jesus Christ vested in the apostles of Christ, I exhort you, do you do that? No. You go here with the new believer right there to 1 Thess 4, and you say, you, so you're a believer, right? And you're new at this, right? I was too once. I was once too. You know who else was new? The Thessalonians. See what it says right here? The apostle tells them that they ought to advance the things that are fitting with salvation. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. See, Paul's commands come actually from Jesus. So as we're serving the Lord, we need to read what Paul says. And you can show someone what it means to walk as a Christian with this primer on basic Christian life. 1 Thessalonians, the second epistle we have from Paul chronologically. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And right there, can anybody here tell me what sanctification means? Huh? It means to be set apart. So you, right there, you're like, I'll let me break this down for you. Sanctification, five syllables. Do you know that word means to be set apart? That we're set apart from sin and wickedness, set apart to God and righteousness. And that's what he's talking about is walking in sanctification. You could explain this to a new person. See, but that's what chapter four does is it breaks from the story of how we got here to what are the expectations and that's how the, all the epistles are. Well, they, they don't all tell the story necessarily and then get to the, the exhortation, but there's doctrine and then there's uh, uh, expectation. There's the, the theology and then the, the, the commands. And so when you get to the command section, it's pretty straightforward. Let's get one more command. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So he's going to early just hit these early Christians in Macedonia with a little, a little short section on the besetting sin of all humans in all cultures. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, if you want to get away from pornea, it means fornication people, fornicators, people have sex outside of marriage. If you want to get away from that, you've got to leave the planet. I'm not talking about separating from unbelievers people of the world that are guilty of this. I'm talking about believers that engage in this. You separate from that. You have nothing to do with that because it denies our, our faith. And so he goes and notice that's an early Christian thing to talk about. Now imagine if you've got a new believer that you're trying to disciple or you want the Lord to bring on and so you're praying for them and, you, and, and all of a sudden you hear this message. And you're like, okay, so Pastor Dave says the new Christian, you could just take them to the commands in First Thess 4. What's your first conversation? You're gonna tell them what sanctification is as a summary. If you're smart, you'll take them to Ephesians 5.18 and tell them to be filled with the Spirit and what that looks like and how that relates to personal sin and what we do about personal sin. That's really important, basic Christian teaching. But now what? You're going to read this thing and you abstain from sexual immorality and you're going to tell them what that means. You're going to say that that means sexual contact that is not between a husband and wife in God's covenant bond of marriage. And that's a problem for all human beings before a righteous and holy God. And can you imagine that being applicable to somebody in this civilization today, can you imagine what would happen if the new believer comes to see that basic Christian modus operandi includes sexual uh, rectitude, a righteous life in your sexual life? Can you, imagine, can you see how obviously that's super applicable? Because right away, you're going to talk about something that no one's talking about. Everyone wants to talk about whether you can change the plumbing. Everyone wants to talk about how chromosomes don't matter. What matters is uh, plastic surgery. 
and, and hormones. Can you imagine? Like, that's not the, where the, the topic, topic is at all. The conversation isn't about I'm attracted to the same sex or I'm not. That's not even where the conversation is at all. The conversation goes all the way back to Genesis 2, God's design of marriage and what sex is for and where it's legitimately expressed. See, you're, you're rolling back all of the, We don't even have to fight those battles. They're irrelevant because they're all springing on the other side of fornication. Of course, this is awesome that in this early primer, we would go to that topic. And first, those four and five are beautiful in their basic Christian doctrine sense that, that wonderful conversations could be had. You could do devotion with somebody that's a new believer two verses at a time in First Thess 4 and 5. I recommend you do the whole epistle with someone. Just This is the story of how they came to Christ. And notice how this could be like, I remember how I shared this with you and you, God did something. It was real to you and you trusted in Christ. They're like, yes, this is what happened in, in Acts 17. This is what happened with us, with, with the Thessalonians. And look what the expectation is, that as you grow, you're going you're gonna to grow vocal cords and say, as you grow, you're going to share. You're going to be doing the same thing I'm doing. And right there, the new believer, First Thessalonians is written to babies. The new believer is getting the mission, is understanding what we're growing up towards. I know. You got a new baby believer, hand them a Nintendo Switch. Got a new baby believer, let's go see a movie. Or let's do something entertaining. Let's just eat candy. And then the, they learn that, well, we eat candy. That's what believers do. No. We, we're headed to the work that God called Paul to do, and we're going to be part of that. And you tell that baby believer, that's where we're headed. That's where it goes. Give them something to grow into. Give them something to shoot for. That seems to be some of the features we have of follow-up ministry um, here in uh, Paul's ministry. And I think if we imitate him, we'll seek for God to fan the flames. And if he'll let us, we'll be part of that here and there. What does your spiritual life have to be to be that way? What kind of reality does it have to be for you? For you to say, hey, I want to get together with you. One of my favorite books of the Bible, I just want to read it through and sh show you some things that I've, lear I've learned over the years. Would you, would you sit down with me? And, and, and try to have that conversation with someone. I dare you. And, and what, what kind of spiritual life do you have to be living to, to have yourself together enough spiritually to then turn it around and share with someone else? Well, don't wait. Don't wait until you figure you got it together. Because part of getting it together, beloved, is being willing to do the work. There's no time to, 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 to navel gaze when you've got an appointment at 6, 6, uh, 4.30 in the afternoon because you're getting out, out of work early. We're going to sit down and spend 30 minutes in Ephesians or in First Thessalonians. Our Father, we're rich because you've made us rich in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit to equip us for every good work that you expect for us to do. And we recognize that he uses the word he inspired in the apostles and prophets. He uses these wonderful truths of the Bible. And we need them, Father. We want to fall in love with them. We want to be nourished in them. And we never want to stop feasting on the word. But we don't want to be um, just full of teaching. Father, we need the skill, the wisdom, the insight and the power to turn it around and share. Strengthen us for it, pray in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. amen.